You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boomerang people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis, Pack and current hands. affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 oh, a.m. to late 30 a.m. Good morning, you're listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. I'm your host, Paddy. How was your weekend? Have you already heard about the changes in restrictions for Victoria? On Saturday, Dan Andrews announced due to a recent spike in cases, gatherings in the home are limited to five guests. And of course, this should be limited and always uh, adhering to social, strict social distancing guidelines. Uh, Cinemas and gyms are still set to open, but with limits of 20 people per space. And these new restrictions are set until the 12th of July. And hopefully by then we'll see a downtrend in the number of new cases. Anyway, I'm not joined by Alice, Claudia and Ella today for our introductory chat, but you'll be hearing their voices very soon, so let's get moving with the show. First, we're going to cover the developments in tertiary education announced by Minister Dan Tien last Friday, so stay tuned for some alternative news.
A week after Prime Minister Scott Morrison claimed that there is no history of slavery in Australia, Education Minister Dan Tien announced that the cost of a history degree at university will double. Presumably that will deter future generations debunking any more of the Prime Minister's false assertions. Arts and Humanities uni fees are set to increase by 113% as part of the government scheme to overhaul tertiary education, while job-relevant course fees will reduce by up to 62%. The policy aims to encourage students towards areas of expected employment growth, such as healthcare, science and technology, education and construction. Tian said on Friday, students will have a choice. Their degree will be cheaper if they choose to study in areas where there is expected growth in job opportunities. But this seems to be a flaw in the minister's policy. Students in areas predicted to have less opportunity for employment will also have the largest debt, and by inference will be at least likely to be able to pay it back. But it doesn't surprise me the government predicts fewer job opportunities in arts and culture in Australia. We have seen nothing but funding cuts to the sector, with literary magazines such as The Overland and The Island, the latest to lose their eligibility from the Australia Council, as well as La Mama Theatre earlier this year. Well, who knows if the government is right. Maybe there is no value in arts. Of course, Minister Teen himself studied a Bachelor of Arts at Melbourne Uni, so he must have perceived something worthwhile in that start to his career. Well, Minister Teen was born in 1968. That suggests he would have completed that degree before the introduction of HECS in 1989 by the Hawke government. If that's the case, I hope Minister Teen enjoyed his free education. I know for a fact former treasurer Joe Hockey did. Old Joe balked at the idea of a $250 administration fee for students in 1987. Here's what he had to say back then. We will continue to go out onto the streets and to protest and actively encourage the public to support us in our campaign for free education. If I were a more vulgar person, I would tell Minister Tien what he can do with his education policies. But instead I'll quote that first line from The Lucky Country by Donald Horne. Australia is a lucky country run mainly by second-rate people who share its luck. It lives on other people's ideas, and although its ordinary people are adaptable, most of its leaders, in all fields, so lack curiosity about the events that surround them that they are often taken by surprise. We will continue to cover this story on Monday Breakfast because it's still unclear what impact this policy might have on arts, on journalism, and on the other careers which an arts degree is a pathway to. It's also unclear how much this is going to impact the teachers and academics who work in the arts and humanities. Next we're going to hear Claudia speak to Senior Barrister Greg McIntyre about the recent destruction of the Chukin Caves in Pilbara by Rio Tinto. But first, here's number one dads with Twice a Fool. I stay up late cause I like you 
you can see that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people, and the length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion, and it began 250 years ago this year. Now we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda and race hatred indoctrination. Now it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land, brutally. We might be oppressed but we understand what freedom is and we fight for it every day and we've resisted this occupation since day one. And I predict colonialism, capitalism, imperialism is going to get knocked out cold by about mid this year. Tricia, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Last week, I spoke to Pauline Wright, President of the Law Council of Australia, about the use of tear gas in juvenile detention centres in the Northern Territory and the national shame of Australia's Indigenous incarceration rates. This week, I continue the focus on Indigenous rights, this time in the context of the devastating actions of Australia's second largest mining corporate, Rio Tinto, which last month destroyed a 46,000-year-old heritage site valued by the traditional owners, the Kunta Kurama people and Pinakura people of the Pilbara, Western Australia. Reconciliation Australia described the activity as a breathtaking breach of a respectful relationship and has suspended Rio Tinto from its Reconciliation Action Plan partnership program. Perhaps most shocking of all is that Rio Tinto's actions were legal endorsed by the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs in Western Australia under the now notorious Section 18 of the Aboriginal Heritage Act. I spoke to Native Title and Aboriginal Heritage Protection Law expert Greg McIntyre from Perth to unravel exactly what happened. Welcome, Greg. Thank you so much for joining us from Perth. Good morning, Claudia. So the Aboriginal Heritage Act came into being almost 50 years ago in Western Australia. Can you tell us what was the overriding purpose of this legislation? Uh, it's to protect Aboriginal heritage for and on behalf of the state. So it actually declares that all Aboriginal heritage is the property of the Crown uh, and sets up a process for government effectively to manage the protection of Aboriginal heritage as defined in the Act. Uh, it really came out of, of impetus from, uh, from scientists, from archaeologists and anthropologists, uh, people working in the West Australian Museum. Uh, so it was led in that way rather than an Indigenous-led response. That might be something we'll come back to when we talk about uh, reform of the, the Act. But just coming back to the circumstances surrounding uh, the Rio Tinto caves last, the company received its Section 18 permit in 2013. Are you aware whether that permit was to carry out an investigative excavation or whether it was a green light to actually destroy 
the area? Uh, well, it's always the latter. Um, it's these permit permits uh, are not merely for the purpose of investigation. The purpose of consenting to um, what can't be done under Section 17, that is the destruction, damage, alteration of a site. So it was a decision to that effect. Now, whether or not um, further activity was to occur uh, may have been something which was taken into account in giving that consent. Uh, I, I know that um, there were there was an anthropological team who did have a connection with the Aboriginal people who uh, conducted work there and uh, conducted salvage operations after the consent had been given. The difficulty um, with the way the legislation operates is that there's, once the consent has been given, there's no way of revisiting it under the legislation. And so as the current minister said, well, it wasn't his decision, it was a minister from the previous government. Um, even if he'd wanted to um, change it because there were things discovered from the investigations after the consent was given, there doesn't appear to be any mechanism by which he could have done that. That sounds uh, extraordinary, doesn't it? It does, and it's clearly something which one would hope, uh, having had this graphic experience, um, the government will ensure that there is something in the legislation which allows for that, or at the very least, conditions are made very clear that enable a revisiting uh, where circumstances change. It seems that this Rio Tinto case falls between these cracks that you're identifying because or a year after the consent was given, they engaged a leading firm to carry out excavation work in the area. And I quote from the archaeological website, the results of the detailed excavations are amazing, with the antiquity of the site occupation being over 37,000 years ago and the sediment containing over 7,000 stone tools, wooden tools, and even organic material like paperbark and hair. So clearly, at that point in time, it was evident that there was significant cultural material in the site, and yet mm. things continued. What sort of discussions do you think might have taken place once this report came out? Uh. The, I haven't seen, reported or heard from anybody what discussions of any occurred other than that that was reported. I, I assume that was reported to the company. Um, how they dealt with it seems at the moment to be something uh, of a mystery. Um, and who, who dealt with it and how they responded seems also to be something of a mystery and, and w whether there was any communication between the community relations team of the of Rio Tinto who, whose role is to deal with these sorts of issues and those who who were ultimately responsible for mining who obviously sit in a different part of the company. I don't know what sort of communications occurred within Rio Tinto between those parts of the company. And it's also interesting that it was six years since that archaeological report and dig occurred in 2014. 
um, and the, the time of the actual blast. So it does beg the question as to what was happening during that six-year period in terms of dialogue between the traditional owners and the mining company. There have been two instances of um, damage to sites of this significance within the Rio mine site. The, um, I was aware of an earlier one um, which involved a site of, of similar antiquity. We knew well in advance that there was going to be this damage to the site and so um, there, we had a hearing of evidence of traditional men's stories and, and effectively a, a ceremony to, to in advance to the destruction of the site. And there were songs sung and the story told and the dreaming track followed, um, which went um, across a significant part of the countryside through part of Rio Tinto and BHP's mining areas. Uh, and all of that occurred. Um, and, and then the salvage operation occurred with, I think, the same anthropological and archaeological group. Um, and then the site was blown up. But at least uh, in that instance, it was up front and everybody knew what was happening. Nothing like that seems to have happened in relation to the Jukun site. Hi there, 3CR listeners. This is Shane Howard, the Gowana fellow. These are strange and tough times and a lot of people are doing it really hard. But they will pass. Be kind to yourself and others. Buy local and like 3CR, support local businesses and local artists. Don't be afraid to reach out for help if you need it and don't hold back giving it if you can. Thanks to 3CR for being their collective voice. This is 3CR Monday Brekkie and you're listening to Claudia Craig. I'm talking with Greg McIntyre. Perth-based senior barrister and expert in Australian native title and Aboriginal heritage protection law. Greg's unravelling the legal framework behind the Rio Tinto blast of the Jukun Caves last month. And just when I feel like I'm getting a grip on the legislation, he opens up another aspect of what seems to be a problematic system. Do you think that there is an extra layer of complexity in terms of protecting these sites because the Aboriginal communities also benefit from the mining companies' activities in terms of jobs and economic benefits? Uh, I don't think it's that so much as the, the view from, from historical experience that the mining will proceed. Um, so there have been no instances really of uh, a decision being made not to mine where there was valuable mineral to be taken from the country. Uh, I mean, some, in some, some instances it's possible to avoid. I mean, if, if there's infrastructure being built or something of that nature, uh, sometimes um, railway tracks uh, can be redirected or um things which are being need to be built may be able to be built in a slightly different place from somewhere else um, but ultimately if there's um, a large quantity of valuable iron ore uh, under the site uh, the traditional owners 
uh, from experience know that whatever agreement they might be able to reach, um, it's not going to, they don't have a veto, they're, they're not going to be able to stop that mining occurring because the government is always more likely than not to consent to the mining occurring. And so when they sit at the negotiating table um, in those circumstances, they may be able to get some, some benefits out of what occurs, um, but they, they do that on the basis of an understanding that it's most unlikely that if they didn't, if they wanted the, the mining not to occur, it's going to occur anyway. And how does that sit with their rights under native title? Uh, well, it's that's exactly as it is under native title. I mean, the Native Title Act um, allows for miners to apply for mining tenements. Uh, it obliges them to negotiate with the native title claimants or native title holders um, for a minimum of a six month period and they're to negotiate in good faith. But if after the six month period agreement is not reached, then the miner is entitled to go to the to the arbitral body under the Native Title Act uh, and there hasn't been a decision of an arbitral body which has said mining the mining tenement should not be granted and mining should not proceed. Uh, and so again, native title holders know that from historical experience after the over the last quarter of a century uh, that it's most unlikely that the result will be other than that the mining will proceed. And so that's the basis upon which the negotiations start and finish. And who sits on that tribunal? Uh, that's presided over by members of the National Native Title Tribunal. Um, uh, and they, they, have a stat they do have a statutory set of criteria which they're obliged to take into account, uh, which does include uh, the national interest. So the national interest being um, the economic benefit to the nation. Uh, that's clearly one of the aspects of the national interest, yes. They typically um, do, do make those decisions subject to cultural heritage protocols, um, which allow for the possibility of, of avoidance of damage to sites where that may be possible. Um, but it, there's always a tension between that and the economic advantage uh, which flows from damage to the sites. Well, thank you very much for talking to us. Before we go, it's hard to talk to you without um, mentioning your very famous background as uh, one of Australia's leading lawyers in the Mabo case. You're quite a, um, a legend, I believe, having taken on that case back in 1981 and uh, it really became one of the landmark, the landmark case in native title, but uh, definitely one of Australia's most famous legal cases. How does it feel to be that person? Uh, well, I mean, a small number of people are aware of that from time to time. Um, and uh, my concern is that there's still, still work to be done. Um, and uh, obviously, that case um, helped. Uh, it created a profile for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people where when the, the then Hawke government had promised national land rights legislation, but that never occurred. And so something needed to take its place. It's 
played a part for the last 25 years. Um, I think we're now moving on to constitutional recognition, uh, treaty voice. Um, those things, I think, uh, ought to gain some impetus to now move on in the second wave of self-determination for Aboriginal people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Do you feel in, as inspired today as you did back then to be part of this force to make legal change? Oh, yes, I'm still uh, uh, very actively engaged. I mean, I suppose having been involved in the Mabo case, uh, some people do listen to me from time to time. Um, and so I use that to the advantage that can be it can be used um, for the cause. Well, you sound very modest and um, it's been an absolute privilege to have the opportunity to hear your insight into this um, particular instance and the wider legal position. So thank you very much. And that was West Australian Barrister and Senior Counsel Greg McIntyre talking about the legal framework concerning the recent blast by Rio Tinto in the Pilbara. Melbourne's local documentary film festival is going online and nationwide from the 30th of June until the 15th of July. Canvassing an eclectic range of documentaries from South by Southwest, Slam Dance and Tribeca to Music, video games and true crime, with over 55% locally made in Melbourne and across Australia. Check it out at www.mdff.org.au. Prices start from $8 a stream. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Now we're going to hear a song called Solid Rock. I think you might know this one. It's the three-decade anniversary version recorded with children from the APY lands, joined in a chorus by renowned Australian singers, Archie Roach, Natalie Payapaya, Emma Donovan, Myra Howard and Amy Saunders. Oh, 
You're listening to Monday Breakfast 3CR and today I'll be talking to Toshiko King, a marine biologist, environmental activist and seed mob organising coordinator. Today we're speaking about the Environmental Film Festival Australia as they launch their online programme with The Condor and the Eagle on Saturday the 27th of June. 
co-hosted with Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network and the Condor and the Eagle Impact Campaign. The online screening of The Condor and the Eagle is followed up with a Q&A hosted by Indigenous women from America and Australia, and Toshiko is one of these women. And first, I just wanted to know a little bit more about Tish. You're a marine biologist, I understand? Yes, yes I am. And um, how did you come to how did you come to sort of study in the ocean and and your environmental activism? Um, it's actually a really good question because I actually went back and studied as a mature age student. Um, I sort of, um, you know, did the classic, like enrolled into uni um, straight out of high school. And I guess, you know, put myself in sort of a degree that I like only went in because all my friends were, um, which was mm. obviously what I cared about more at that time of my life. Um, but I ended up being, um, I ended up, um, you know, dropping out and just sort of leaving Ellen and ended up going on like traveling. And as I traveled and explored and, and around Australia and overseas, I um, really found my passions for um the environment like seeing some of the issues like I saw like an oil spill and became part of the uh, larger team to help um, clean up and you know save our flora and fauna and some of the species in Wharton Bay up in Brisbane and it really sort of things sort of like upon reflection over time it started really kicking in like you know um, as a proud Torres Strait Islander woman I've always felt connected to the ocean Um, you know uh, with our island surrounded by beautiful seas and coral reefs um, and so ingrained to, to us, I was like, I'm convinced I've got salt water blumping in, like blumping in my soul. <laughs> oh, blood pumping in my soul, blumping. Wow. Um, <laughs> I realised that um, I knew that I wanted to be outside and doing that sort of stuff and really, um, I guess, you know, seeing how the oceans move and, you know, how they drive so much energy and create so much so many different ecosystems and as I got more into it I realized like yep you know what cool I'm going back to uni and um really fell really found um you know like what I was really passionate about um so it's been um did that on the Gold Coast and it was a I think a really great place because I was surrounded by the ocean so I sort of got that um um energy every day and motivated for Mm -hmm. it and so it was yeah really amazing wow that's such an I think that's such an important thing that you said also is like you went you had some experience and then you went back and studied it's like you didn't because I think so many people write themselves off if they haven't gone to university straight away or found something they want to do straight out of school and you sometimes you need to experience some stuff before you really find out what you want to do that's exactly right like everyone has a different way of learning um and approaching that learning and for me it was um you know I had to sort of step back and um like I was one of those ones just living beyond my means um and I was like even like I sort of had like looked back at myself I was like I'm think I'm being a spoiled brat or you know really ungrateful um but yeah it um no it really sort of made me really passionate and I guess you know seeing where I am today um I'm still passionate I have those same feelings um about you know protecting environment you know protecting country whether it's mine or whether it's someone else's it's so important to us and you know that's what um a really great thing um now I'm working for Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network 
and we um, have partnered up with the Environmental Film Festival uh, of Australia for their First Nations initiative, uh, Caring for Country. And I'm just really excited that we can, um, you know, being able to work together with another non-for-profit organisation um, and non-Indigenous um, because it's so important right now that we um, are working with our allies for the same cause and those issues. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was going to touch on that later, but like as we're as it's we're talking about it, I mean, the festival, the environmental film festival, and um, the condor and the eagle being part of that has really come in the middle of the the racial and social movement we're in right now with the Black Lives Matter, and also with the huge environmental destruction we're seeing um, with the I mean, BHP is recently. Um, yeah, the news that they're going to be destroying 40 Aboriginal sites and that the bushfires at the beginning of the year. Do you think this is really time now that the government needs to be listening? And do you think they are at all listening to Indigenous voices? Look, you're right. We are at a really crucial moment. And I think upon reflection of where we have been, um, as you listed, like the last, you know, past, like, like couple of six months that we've had, um, it's just, I think what is happening is that what was presently working and what they were doing wasn't working. So whether they were listening or not, we can put that in the past and be like, now you really need to step up because, I mean, what happened over in the United States in Minneapolis with George Floyd um, is a trigger to a lot of, um, you know, people of colour um, and First Natives and, and Indigenous peoples across the world because it actually just reminds us, reminds us of those injustices and inequalities still in our systems. And so every time something happens like that, we are reminded and it's really hard that um, because how can we heal and move forward? Um, and I think that's what's really important, um, like to, you know, our p people that are listening at the moment because we're just becoming exhausted and now we need these government organisations um, and, you know, other bodies just to really step up because, you ob like, you obviously feel it too. And now we need a massive shift in that. And it only can happen at the top. And they really have to want to do it. Um, we can't make people do it. Um, and I think this film is a reminder of that. Um, the Condor and the Eagle really just illustrates um, the like, you know, the roots of where we come from and why things are so important to us. And I think a lot everyone can really um you know, resonate with that because everyone likes going out for the weekend, going for a hike, going up to the mountains, going to the beach. And we need to really protect that. Like it all, you know, because that's our simple enjoyments of life. And I mm -hmm. people need to reflect and remind themselves mm -hmm. that. And, um, and can you, I mean, I haven't seen the film yet, so I've signed up for the viewing, which is going to be on the Saturday, on next Saturday. Um, <laughs> at 11 a.m. So, and the link will be in our 3CR breakfast page. Um, so I've signed up and I can't wait to watch it, but can you just um, tell our listeners a little bit about the film? Yeah, absolutely. So 
The Condor and the Eagle is a documentary about Native Indigenous communities fighting against big fossil fuel industries that are contaminating their homelands. And it focuses on um, just a few different communities that are really trying to... um, like educate people and really um, be at the forefront of that justice and it actually um, ancient prophecies say that when an eagle of the north and the condor of the south fly together indigenous indigenous peoples will unite the human family so what it actually really explored was that it illustrates that no matter like um, country, time, you know, miles that you are away from each other, Um, you know, First Nations are actually still dealing with those same impacts and it's that prophecy really just illustrates um, hope for people. And I think that um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, people here too in Australia um, sort of have those same stories, you know, and people are quite common of the Dreamtime stories. So it's um, it's an, an incredible film that elevates the voices of Indigenous women as well who are at that forefront um, and, you know, uh, shares us, you know, the myriad of pipelines um, that is under the, you know, USA and how mm. and just really just shows like his other voices in community like one of my favorite ones I just heard a protester in a part of the film that just said if you drink water and if you breathe air this is an important issue and it is like it means something to you and I thought wow. it was really powerful because it's just those simple elements. Like it, it's Yeah, simple. there's no politics in that. No, like politics just, aside, it doesn't matter where you stand, you're breathing this air, you're drinking this water, this is your problem and your, you need justice for that too, 100%. Yeah. And um, so the film, the, the film, it sounds like, beautifully brings Indigenous people together from um, the U.S., is that right? So from is and uh, North America to South America? Yeah, absolutely. So it um so they um it starts with yeah, First Nations in in America and that sort of touch base with First Nations up in Alberta, Canada. Um of the tar sands. So people, some people might actually know that tar sands is a carbon bomb and it is like one of, it, it pretty much is the biggest polluter, carbon polluter in the world. Mm. Um, and so it really shows, um, you know, touches base up there and about, um, you know, illustrates a bit about their community and their native ceremonies about and processes about, you know, taking action and healing their land and healing their country. And, you know, you'll notice throughout the film and, like, they protest without, with voice, and uh, and some of their totems, like no weapons, uh, you know, no guns, no violence. And I think that was something really beautiful that was um, depicted in this film. And I think um, it's something that we at Seed, you know, do as well with the Don't Frack the Antique campaign too. 
Um, but uh, that's something else, sorry. Um, but yeah, so no, it, yeah, I um, it's it's really beautiful. Um, then they travel down all the way to Ecuador and look on the Tigray River and the Yusan National Park, and it's just so amazing because it connects with like about forty different um, you know, indigenous communities in the area that come together. And I think it goes back to the title, you know you know, when North meets South, we really can come together and stand in solidarity and fight for for our rights, for our um, qualities, um, for our livability, sustainable livability. And how are Indigenous people internationally coming together to fight climate justice? Um, so uh, like every country, there's uh, lots of organisations um uh, that um, campaign for climate issues. Um, so what actually this um, film that, that we'll be showing next uh, next Saturday is part of a b- bigger international campaign and a movement to actually illustrate that we need to, the world needs to hear our voices. And I think, you know, with, it, you know, with the uh, landscape at the moment, I think a lot of people are really listening or really trying to hear and learn more and this is a time and I mean we could not have actually foreseen this um, but it, it now we really need to illustrate um, you know these injustices like the reality is, is that big corporations actually say something out to the media and we are not illustrated about truths in our communities and what is actually happening you know we do we go through their processes of how we have to do it through our MPs and for them going into court and it's that constant kickback um, and we can't stop fighting because we need this is our country this is our land and we want you know, the next generation to have those opportunities. And so right now coming together and with all these different organisations, like we have really big organisations coming together like Greenpeace, we've got 350, Extinction Rebellion, um, and then we've obviously got us here at Seed, Original Power, and we're just trying to spread it through and we've got um, partnered up with some great organisations to share that as well, like Friends of the Earth and Great Barrier Reef. Mm-hmm. It's going to be awesome, actually. Yeah. No, it sounds, yeah, it's going to be incredible. And and ultimately with the film and with your experience right now as well, are you feeling like there's momentum building and are you feeling quite optimistic about this next kind of chapter in the climate, the fight for climate justice with Indigenous people? Absolutely. If 2020 hasn't um, taught us a lesson so far, it, it like, I don't, where have you been hiding? And I think this is... <laughs> Yes, we are at a crucial moment and I th- and I think we can really make a difference and really shift and if we ramp up those pressures on these organisations to actually shift to renewable energy, we need to actually put that pressure on them and keep ramping this up. And so, you know, telling these stories and hearing our voices is just going to be one of, like, one of them. Yeah. And so you'll be speaking on the panel on Saturday after the film, um, which I'm yeah really excited to see. And that's the that's a is that a Q and A with the panel as well, or is it just the panel conversation? Yeah, so um, so it'll be a panel conversation, but I think that's more so just to introduce to us, um, introduce us to to our audience, and we've got like a good 
great half an hour of Q and A. So you know, the more people that we can actually uh, jump on, on jump online and see that. Um, it's going to be really amazing because we do have two people from um, the Americas um, that will be online, which is going to be fantastic because you have an opportunity to ask people at the forefront of their issue, as well as Seed will be joining on and we will be also talking about, you know, our campaign with uh, Don't Frack in the NT and trying to put that pressure on Origin Energy. Wow, amazing. That's such, yeah, it's great to have the four um, panel guests in the room and especially, as you said, two from um, Australia, which is great for us to ask questions, and two in the US directly um, involved in the film as well. And I wanted to know also, when you were watching the film, how did it make you feel? All sorts of feelings. It, mm. it, it was a really nice illustration to actually see what really goes on um you know we always see magazine or front covers of just um the numbers game because everything is a business but when you actually hear the voices that are at like those communities that are at risk most at risk it really it's it's really um it's really emotional um to see their struggles you know but how they really just stick together um, and really help and build, come together as a community. I think that with um, it's an important thing for people who have, you know, we've just been in isolation and how important it is for connection and that, you know, First Nations people across the world have been fighting these pandemics forever. This is nothing new to us. And so I think this really, for people um, that do, uh, you know, jump on, it's going to, I hope it sort of sort of puts you on a path of um, truth-telling or finding about um, what really does happen, that the media, that mainstream media doesn't illustrate, and that maybe it's the start of your own journey to find that out and make those choices because, um yeah, it's um it's quite moving. It's it's emotional, but it's um empowering because those voices, it's it's it pretty much is what drives it drives you. Um, you know, it's community and um something that um where I draw my energy from, you know, seeing my family and my uthers and uckers um on the islands, you know, being um with the struggles of sea levels rising, um, as well as natural disasters that's exacerbated by fossil fuels. I just, um, that's where, that's what I, that's what I know I want to do and help mm. and you know, help community. Mm. Really, um, I think it's going to be it's really, really um, amazing, um, everyone watching it, because I think they'll uh, feel the same. Yeah. And I think the most amazing thing apart about this whole festival also is that it's free. So it's completely free. Absolutely. Whole, <laughs> yeah, amazing, amazing. Yeah, so we're going to have... Sorry. We're going to have the links on our... Sorry, I was just going to say, we're going to have the links on our um, page so all of our listeners can go and follow that straight through um, to either, yeah, hopefully donate and, um, and stream and watch and ask questions and be engaged and take something away from from that session um yeah I can't wait I'm really looking forward to it 
That's amazing. Look, thank you so much, Alice. And as um, she just said, um, you know, they'll have it on their socials. Also jump on um, Seed, Instagram and our Facebook, as well as the Environmental Film Festival Australia. Head to their um, website and they'll have all the information there. You've been listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast and my conversation with Tish King about the Environmental Film Festival Australia. In particular, the film The Condor and the Eagle. Tish will be one of the panellists after the show to answer questions about the Indigenous fight for climate justice in Australia. Head to www.effa.org.au to register for the festival. It's free, it's on the 27th of June at 11am and you can register and donate now. Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. I think 3CR is the voice of the people, speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think, and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. 3CR is your station in solidarity and struggle. We've been with you since 1976, and we are here to stay. Throughout June, we're running a station appeal. We need the financial support of our listeners to stay independent, community-owned and radical. Jump online and give what you can. Go to 3cr.org.au. Hello, Florence here. I remember discovering community radio around 40 years ago when I was still a youngster. You don't hear me on the air, at least not anymore. Lives change while we are busy making other plans. But one thing that's still the same is 3CR's annual call-out for financial support and donations to those of us who can afford it. If you can, please dig deep with me to ensure that 3CR stays alive and thrives, especially at these times. Go to 3cr.org.au to find out about your way of paying up. Stay safe and keep connected to your local community radio station, 3CR. This week I wanted to take a look at the state of journalism and the media industry in Australia. The already struggling industry has been hard hit by the financial impact of the COVID-19 crisis. While our demand for news, our willingness to pay for it, and even our trust in the news has all surged during the pandemic, 
this boost in consumption hasn't translated into a boost in profits. The media relies on ad revenue, and the bottom line is that no one can afford to advertise at the moment. The impacts of this have been far-reaching, and regional news in particular is in dire straits. This is something I want to look into on Monday Brecky in the coming weeks. The value and impact of news, in particular regional news on society, and the response we've seen to the crisis so far. There are many actions being taken in an attempt to support media and journalism, and there's also been much analysis of the industry and how it can adapt and restructure in this new environment. It's highlighted the diversity problem with journalism and the ways in which the structure of the industry is fundamentally broken, and how what should be a tool to democracy can also work to consolidate powers while further marginalizing others. So before looking ahead, I wanted to take this week to look back and reflect, because a pivotal moment such as this should be an opportunity to do better, not just survive. We're going to hear from Eric Jensen, who spoke as part of the Penn Lecture at the Wheeler Center last year. Eric is the founding editor of the Saturday paper. He's won the Walkley Award for Young Print Journalist of the Year and the United Nations Media Peace Award. Eric discusses the need for a serious reckoning and a re-evaluation of standards of ethics and objectivity during what is described as the second crossroads for journalism. Not one of means, but of privilege. This is a speech about journalism and the things we cannot see. It's about the fragility of our industry the inability to take on criticism. It's about the basic principles from which we've built our craft and their need to be questioned and sometimes updated. More than anything, this speech is about every conversation I've had that ends with someone saying, yes, but it's just what we do. I learned journalism in a newsroom. I started as a cadet on the Sydney Morning Herald, straight from school, arriving in a world that awed me and that I revered. On starting at the Herald, I was given a code of ethics, which I read and earnestly upheld. Across five pages, the code set out the standards from which journalists would work. The code had sensible entries on honesty, impartiality, fairness, independence, privacy and respect. It provided for discretion and recognised the intrusions caused by our work. Some of this wisdom was seen in practice and some of it less so. The code did not engage with the issue of marginalisation, except in one section, marked relevance. It stated, staff will not place unnecessary emphasis on personal characteristics, including race, ethnicity, nationality, gender, age, sexual orientation, family relationships, religious belief or physical disability. Reading it now, this section is not about engaging with or understanding difference. It is about how to avoid it. I was thinking about this again recently as I looked at and disagreed with a series of responses to criticisms levelled at journalism. These were the months of Steve Bannon and Serena Williams. I saw an industry in a state of heavy defensiveness. People of colour were expressing concern at how race was being covered, and journalists, almost all of them white, were refusing to listen. The industry pointed to precedent. We interview people. That's what we've always done. Everybody is skewered by a cartoon. The status quo was guarded. There was no attempt to interrogate the ethics of our industry. It did not seem important that the absolutes being defended, that we ask questions, that we mock power, were established in newsrooms that were wholly white and wholly male, and that in those newsrooms, privilege of class and private education was a given. These basic principles were immutable. Their source was unimportant. 
Journalism has always worked from a place of defensiveness. It is always guarding itself, correctly, I think, against the insidiousness of influence and power. I remember a painting at the Herald, a horrible large mural by Salvatore Zoffre. On it was written, among other things, in moderation, placing all my glory, while Tories call me Whig and Whigs a Tory. The line had run in the paper's first editorial from Alexander Pope's imitation of Horace. It sat beside the lift well and I'd walked past it so often that as I went to write this, I didn't need to look it up. The premise is a decent one, the celebration of impartial reporting. Upset both sides, it said. Do not bow. Do not listen when the powerful question your work. It made a virtue of criticism, but it also encouraged a writer to be deaf to it. This might be the only industry in the world where being told you are wrong is taken as proof that you are right. When the subject of your scorn is powerful, this is necessary and good. But when they are not, it becomes a very ugly kind of indifference. Recently, the playwright Nakia Louis said something that should be pinned up at news desks around the country. The press council would do well to have it etched into a wall somewhere. Many white people, particularly white men, don't see racism as abuse. They see it as a difference of opinion. Whenever we talk about power, we talk about fragility. That is because power is in flux. Those used to it are losing it or feel as if they are, and they have become brittle to everything that looks like a threat. Perversely, the threat is often the least powerful person in the room asking if they could be listened to. In the past two decades, the model that once supported journalism has collapsed. The industry has reduced in size and influence. New platforms for publishing have brought welcome new voices, but have also brought an unfiltered approach to information, much of it difficult to verify, some of it mischievous and untrue. An industry that was already brittle has become hypersensitive. It meets its critics with indignation, worried that any concession might undermine its purpose. The classified advertising that made newspapers unassailable is gone. It's not coming back. All that is left of that old power is an apparent monopoly on truth. And yet the desire to hold on to this makes journalism blind to where a nuanced understanding of that truth might be. Instead, there is an eagerness to dismiss information that comes through unfamiliar channels. There is a belligerent scepticism that can border on the inhumane. Tell me your experience. Prove it. I don't believe you. He didn't say the N-word, so his motive could not have been racist. There is a desire to exert power, to interview a white supremacist just to prove that you can, to refuse critique for doing so, for normalising hatred, because you believe a tricky question has offered balance, or because you can point to the accepted standards of our industry, which says that you are simply telling both sides. The ethics that test our journalism that hold it to a higher account are important and truly worthy. With them, however, comes responsibility. They cannot be unyielding to new, more nuanced information. The limitations of their establishment, the whiteness of the newsrooms in which they were honed, the maleness, the wealth, needs to be recognised and reinterrogated. 
This won't make journalism weaker. It will make it stronger. There is a belief inside our industry that deferring to these standards holds us to account. In reality, it is an abdication of responsibility. We point to the stone tablet on which the basic tenets of journalism were written and avoid having to explain the vagaries hidden behind those words. We don't check our actions. We check simply that they satisfied the bald standards to which we were signatory. I think about every death knock I've ever done, waiting on the front lawn of someone's house to ask about the loss of a loved one. I think about the intrusion on grief. I think about how I told myself that we were helping to honour the memories of the person who used to live on the other side of the door. I think about the competition with other papers for these stories. I think about how little we really thought about what we were doing. It's journalism, I told myself at the time. It's what we've always done. I want my industry to be better than that. I want my industry to ask itself the question it is always promising to answer. Why? Why are we doing it? You're on 3CR, and if you're just joining us on Monday Breakfast this morning, we're listening to Eric Jensen, who spoke at the Wheeler Centre last year about journalism's diversity problem. He continues by explaining the history of white privilege and the relationship between race and journalism. White privilege was first named, at least by that phrase, in 1919. The description came from the union movement. Considering it, the author Renietta Lodge wrote, and I quote here, how can I define white privilege? It's so difficult to describe an absence. And white privilege is an absence of the negative consequences of racism, an absence of the structural discrimination, an absence of your race being viewed as a problem first and foremost, an absence of less likely to succeed because of my race. She continues, describing and defining this absence means to some extent upsetting the centering of whiteness and reminding white people that their experience is not the norm for the rest of us. It is, of course, much easier to identify when you don't have it, and I watch as an outsider to the insularity of whiteness. This last point is important. It gets at the argument that defines the relationship between race and journalism in this country. It is a relationship of obliviousness, at least on one side. It is not that the media is not hearing this criticism. It's worse. The media is actively not listening. It is not listening, and at the same time, it insists on its place as arbiter or whether of... Sorry. It insists on its place as arbiter of whether or not another perspective is worth listening to. Earlier in the same book, Edo Lodge writes that she's given up on these encounters. She describes a behaviour that elsewhere has been called white fragility. The passage articulates precisely the response journalists give to most criticism, and especially to criticism based around privilege. Quote, I can no longer engage with the gulf of an emotional disconnect that white people display when a person of colour articulates their experiences. You can see their eyes shut down and harden. It's like treacle is poured into their ears, blocking up their ear canals. It's like they can no longer hear us. This emotional disconnect is the conclusion of living a life oblivious to the fact that their skin colour is the norm and all others deviate from it. At best, white people have been taught not to mention that people of colour are different in case it offends us. 
They truly believe that the experiences of their life as a result of their skin colour can and should be universal. I just can't engage with the bewilderment and the defensiveness as they try to grapple with the fact that not everyone experiences the world that they do. In many ways, I should not be giving this speech. I'm worse than imperfect. I'm white and I'm privileged and my comprehensions are limited by my experiences. I'd like to consider this a private reckoning which I've written down and am reading aloud in the hope of working to be better. This is something we each must do. In journalism, the task has great urgency because the impacts of indifference, of avoiding these questions, are bloody and they are real. Here is a moment of reckoning. The media as a whole could benefit from similar work. A proactive auditing of our coverage, a chance to be honest about our flaws and find ways to reset. This audit cannot be conducted internally. The press council is patently unprepared for the task. It needs to be conducted with the assistance of people excluded from our industry and in the presence of views that have been dismissed or overlooked. And this is not just about race. It is about gender and class and all experiences of what the mainstream still calls difference. Until we do this work, we'll continue to report from the past and find ourselves in conflict with the realities of our present. We need a willingness to confront the fact that we can be wrong and that we are. There is no use pretending this is limited to the more grotesque excesses of our craft. It is present in the unrepresentative every day of our industry. We ask questions of everyone but ourselves. There will be those who misinterpret what I'm saying, and I am not calling for censorship. I'm calling for responsibility. I'm asking for us to consider the impact of what we report and how we report it. I am saying the ethical bar we are clearing is not set high enough. Our code of ethics needs to be rewritten from scratch and it needs to be written by people who do not look like me. To end, let me again quote Ido Lodge. She's talking about race, but it is a point applicable to myriad expressions of difference. It is about power and responsibility. The perverse thing about our current racial structure is that it has always fallen on the shoulders of those at the bottom to change it. Yet racism is a white problem. It reveals the anxieties, hypocrisies, and double standards of whiteness. It is a problem in the psyche of whiteness that white people must take responsibility to solve. You can only do so much from the outside. In journalism, the first part of this process is listening. The objectivity we hold in such esteem needs to be turned in on us. We need to confront the anxieties that prevent us from seeing the impacts of our reporting and the shortcomings of our craft. We need to make space to believe. That was Eric Jensen discussing the problem of privilege in journalism and the ways in which the industry needs to change. Now let's go to a track from Nick Cave. This is more news from nowhere.
into the corner of my room See my friends in high places I don't know which is which or who is whom They've stolen each other's faces Janet is there with her high head and hair Full of bedroom feathers Janet is known to make dead men groan In any kind of weather I crawl over to her I say, hey baby, I say, hey Janet You are the one, you are the sun And I'm your dutiful planet But she ain't down with any of that Cause she's heard that shit before And I say, uh-huh, yeah, you're right Cause I see Betty X standing by the door With more news from nowhere That fatal chromosome Her hair is like the wine dark sea In which sailors come home I say hey baby, I say hey Betty X I lean close up to her throat This light you are carrying is like a lamp Hanging from a distant boat It is my light, says Betty X Betty X says this light in yours And so much wind blew through her words That I went rolling down the hall For more news from nowhere Corridor and I see this guy He must be about 100 foot tall And he only has one eye He asked me for my autograph I write nobody and then I wrap myself up in my woolly coat And I blind him with my pen Cause someone must have stuck something in my drink Everything's getting strange looking Half the people are turned into squealing pigs The other half are cooking Well let me out of here I cried And I went pushing past And I saw Miss Polly singing with some girls I cried, she struck me to the mask For more news from nowhere Spent the next seven years between her legs A pining for my wife But by and by it all went wrong I fell washed up on the shore She stared down at me from up in the storm And I sobbed up on the floor for my news And that's our show for this week A huge thank you to all our guests today We'll be back with you next Monday But until then, stay tuned for Women on the Line 